Well, good morning, Grace family. In these days where so many factors have impacted our ability to be together, we are grateful for the ties that bind us. Chief among them is the bond we have in Christ, this divine union we share because of the redemptive work of Jesus that reconciled us to God and made us a family adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, a family that has made us brothers and sisters with one another. So if you are watching this alone or with your family or with your Sunday gathering, we are grateful to be in this together with you. Well, this past week, we witnessed another transfer of power in our nation and gratefully a relatively peaceful one. And I might add, that's something we might take for granted about our nation. Peaceful transfers of power are highly unusual occurrences down through world history. And it's something we all should be deeply grateful for. Our 46th president of the United States of America has now taken office as his team of governing officials as well. And the first ever woman sworn into executive office as well as a new configuration of leaders in Congress. And as Christians, we are called to pray for those in positions of authority. And here's what the Apostle Paul has to say in his letter to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in light of this, how should we pray? We should pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris, just as we should pray for any leader of our country, that they would have the wisdom of humility, a sense of justice, and a mind for peace. So let's pray for the wisdom of humility for those in authority. And wisdom starts with knowing that one doesn't know everything. Let's pray for that, for our president and vice president. And let's pray for justice. We can pray for President Biden the same way we should pray for ourselves, for success in every good thing that accords with justice and, and for a lack of success in every bad thing that doesn't. Let's pray for peace. Paul writes that good governance can result in the church leading a life of quietness and dignity, able to carry out our mission in love, love of God and love for neighbor. And that peace is obviously needed. We need peace in our homes and in our churches and our neighborhoods. And we need to get on with our primary work as followers of Christ to deeply love God treasuring Him above all else, and to love others. And not just the people who are like us and who think like us and believe like us, but all people. So let's draw our hearts together in prayer right now. Father, we are grateful to live in a country where we enjoy so many comforts, advantages, and freedoms. Benefits that we may often take for granted benefits that most people in this world do not have. And in these contentious times where many in our country feel that these benefits are at risk or are being threatened, 
in this time where we have a new set of governing authorities who are now placed in power. We want to pray as you call us to. And so, Lord, we pray for President Biden and for Vice President Harris and for all who are in positions of authority. We pray that you would impress upon their hearts a conviction to pursue truth, justice, and peace. We pray that you would give them a spirit of wisdom and humility to navigate the complexities of governance for the common good of all people. And where their initiatives are in line with your heart, what is good and right and true, we pray that you give them success. And where their initiatives are not aligned with what is pleasing to you, we pray that you thwart their success. And as for us, Lord, help us to be the kind of people you've always called us to be, people of grace, of mercy, of love. May the fruit of your Spirit grow in our lives, and that as the world sees us live and behave and speak, as the world sees people who are generous in spirit, who love you with unfettered devotion, who love our neighbors, people of all persuasions, with compassionate love. May they be drawn to you, Lord. Help us to be a beacon of light in this dark world, a witness to your name, conduits to you, Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Help us, Father, we pray. This in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Today we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount again in Matthew 5, 17 through 48. It's a really long passage, but it gives us this beautiful look at God's kingdom. So join with me in reading this passage together. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may, may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, 
Do not break your oath, but keep your oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we continue this series on the kingdom of God. And right now we're in Jesus' great kingdom sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And each week in this sermon, we're going to ask a basic question that Jesus is getting after. So last week we looked at this basic question, who are the truly blessed in God's kingdom? And today we're going to look at this question, what does true righteousness look like in God's kingdom? And Jesus in this passage, I know that was a lot to take in, but he addresses six different areas of righteousness. He talks about things like anger and lust, marriage, truth speaking, retaliation, love, even of our enemies. In all of this, we're asking the question, what is true righteousness in God's kingdom? What does true righteousness look like? And so all we can do this morning is make a couple big picture observations. So first, let's start at verse 17. Let me read verse 17 again. Jesus says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, so just to set this in context, right? Jesus is speaking to these first century Jews who have the law and the prophets, uh, what we would know as the Old Testament. This is God's, God's Torah, God's plan, God's rubric for, for what it means to be God's people, what it means to live the life that he wants them to live. And of course, they've had that interpreted for them by the scribes and the Pharisees of their day. And now you have Jesus, who's this traveling rabbi, and he seems to be inviting people into a radically different way of, of being, a different kind of life altogether. And he speaks with this personal authority that's unlike anybody else. I mean, all the other rabbis will quote, you know, Rabbi Hillel says this, and he's interpreting from Rabbi so-and-so who says this, and Jesus just shows up and is like, well, I say to you this. <laughs> So you have this very different feel and flavor with this personal authority, and it raises all sorts of questions and suspicions for people like, so what are you doing? Are you, are you bringing something that is totally new and different? Are you cutting ties with what you know, our story has been up to this point? And so Jesus begins by giving a firm, no, I'm not. I'm not leaving behind the law and the prophets. In fact, just the opposite 
I've come to fulfill them. I've come to show you their true meaning. I want to give you the heart and the intent behind what God has been doing all along. I'm very much in line with God's story and with God's law and with God's prophets. And so I want to give you an image today that I'm going to show you a couple times. It's an image of an iceberg. And we're all familiar with the idea that, you know, like you only see 10% of an iceberg and the other 90% is under the surface. But I want you to picture for a moment, this iceberg is God's Torah, his instructions, what we might call the Old Testament, okay? And so above the surface, you have the explicit commandments in the law. So that would include, of course, the Ten Commandments and the other, you know, 600 plus laws that God gave Israel. But under the surface, you have things like, what was God's intent behind those explicit laws? Like, what, what's the the heart posture that those laws were always pointing to? And maybe even more important than that, what's God's own character himself that is getting expressed in these laws? Because in the end, the law was there to form a people who are who are expressing the kind of character that God himself has, right? The fundamental command of the Old Testament is be holy as I am holy. So Jesus comes along and he said, no, I just want to show you what God's heart has been from the very beginning and, and, and fulfill that intent and show you what that is really like. So for instance, just to give you some examples of this, you know, in his first two, he takes the first two commands, do not murder, do not commit adultery, right? Um, those are from the Ten Commandments. And those are commands to just hit at the level of behavior. But Jesus asks the deeper question, yeah, but what, what's the heart posture that those behavioral commandments are trying to drive us towards? Or take some of the other commandments here. Um, some of the other commandments aren't part of the Ten Commandments. I would call them commandments that are concessions that God made to a fallen world. Basically, these aren't the ideal, but they recognize, hey, we live in a fallen world. And so these are there to hopefully uh, restrain more evil from happening. So for instance, you have the divorce uh, command, right? In verse 31, that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Well, that was a, a concession that in a, in a patriarchal ancient society, if, if a woman was abandoned by her husband, she would have absolutely no legal rights. And where, where divorce wasn't ideal, God gave them that law to protect the woman, give her some sort of legal status. Or uh, the next one about oaths, right? The Old Testament allows people to make oaths and says, you know, fulfill those oaths. And, and that was a way, a concession to hold people to their word, right? Or even the, the next law about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, we hear that and that Old Testament law seems very extreme and very harsh. But in some ways, that law exist, existed to restrain evil. Like if you're going to retaliate on someone, you can't go overboard, right? There has to be justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So all that to say, there's these concessions that the Old Testament makes. But then Jesus comes into, onto the scene and he looks at these things and he says, sure, well, these were part of the law, but what was God's creation intent? What did God intend from the beginning for marriage, for speaking the truth? for the way we deal with people who have harmed us. And so all through this, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not trying to bring something new here, guys. I'm just trying to take you back to the heart of what God's desire for his people has always been, the kind of righteousness that God has always wanted from his people and for his people. All right, so with that then, 
I want to ask the question, so what does this true kingdom righteousness look like? Like, what, what is this all about? And I think there's two verses in our chapter that capture this. First, he begins by telling us what this kind of righteousness is not about. You see it in verse 20. Take a look. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of of heaven. So it's a righteousness that's very different. It actually surpasses the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, the average Jewish person would hear that in that moment and go, well, I'm screwed. Like there's, I can't, uh, there's no way I can outperform these guys. They, they so respected, you know, the religious leaders of the day. Um, but Jesus is being perfectly serious. He, he, he means exactly what he says. And the truth is that these men, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, for all their attention to external details, for all their kind of um, religious observances, they actually weren't righteous people in the end. They actually, actually lacked the kind of righteousness that is necessary for God's kingdom. They lacked the beatitudes that we looked at last week. They lacked the hard postures that Jesus goes on to talk about in this passage. And they stand to us and to every generation as a warning. And this is the warning. You can live as a very respectable religious person and be utterly lacking in the kind of righteousness that belongs to God's kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, I mean something very different than what these people represent, just an external conformity to a set of rules. There's something deeper that God is after. I think ultimately he talks about that deeper righteousness with the second verse I want to point out. This is the final verse he ends with in verse 48, where he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's the kind of righteousness that God is seeking. Now, depending on how you read that verse, you would go, well, of course, that's utterly impossible. Um, Who could be perfect as God is perfect? And I think actually perfect is a very unfortunate uh, English translation here, uh, because if that were the case, then of course, this would be utterly impossible for us. But um, the Greek word there uh, is the word telos. And many of us have heard that word telos, that the telos is is the end for something or, or the goal of something. We would say like the telos of an acorn is an oak tree, right? It's the end or the goal for which something is designed. So maybe a better translation would be something like maturity uh, or wholeness or completeness. What I think Jesus is talking about is a righteousness that goes much deeper than the scribes and Pharisees, that there's a, a wholeness of who the person is, much as God is complete and whole and mature, inside and out, not just an external conformity to rules, uh, but he's calling us to be a new kind of person. He's calling us to be the image bearers that God calls us to be, that we follow in the footsteps of our own Heavenly Father. So in a sense, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect is just Jesus' version of the Old Testament command, be holy as I am holy. We're being invited to imitate our loving and whole, and mature, and gracious Father in heaven. All right, so I want to get at the main idea uh, of what I want to say this morning is he's talking about this deeper righteousness that goes right down to the core of who we are. And the question that I want to ask us is, how do we think about pursuing this kind of righteousness in God's kingdom? 
Like, how do we actually go about pursuing this kind of righteousness that Jesus is inviting us into? And so I want to go back to this image of the iceberg for a second. And now I want you to see this iceberg not as God's law, but let's look at it as this is a picture of ourselves. Okay, so above the surface, you have our our external behaviors and actions that people see that we can present. But then underneath the surface, you have that internal deep stuff that is going on inside of our hearts at our core. And here's the danger, I think, the constant danger for human beings, certainly for religious human beings, is that we just take take ourselves as we are as the starting point. Just take ourselves as the given. And then we look at what God calls us to do and we go, okay, so how can I do that? Like, so I'm going to try to do the good things that God asked me to do. And I'm going to try to avoid the bad things that God asked me not to do. And that's how we tend to pursue righteousness, right? Here I am, and I'm going to try to do what God wants me to do. And I think Jesus is inviting us into a a deeper kind of righteousness that takes us under the surface and asks a very different question, which is not the question, how do I do what God asks me to do? But it's this question, how do I become the kind of person who naturally does the things that God does? And I just want to suggest that's an entirely different kind of question. Okay, it's not the question of how do I avoid murder? It's the question of how do I become the kind of person who has calmed the anger in their heart? It's not how do I avoid adultery, but how do I become the kind of person who isn't walking around with a heart full of lust? How do I become the kind of person that would stay faithful to their spouse through thick and thin? How do I become the kind of person who just naturally speaks the truth? in whatever context they're in? How do I become the kind of person who doesn't feel the need to retaliate? How do I become the kind of person who actually prays for the people who oppose me? Okay, when we start to ask that question, when you start to ask that question of yourself, how do I become that kind of person? Um, You quickly realize, I am not that kind of person. (laughs) At core, that is not who I am. I mean, on the surface, I can pull off certain forms of morality, certain externals. I can make that work most of the time. Um, But under the surface, uh, I'm full of anger. I'm full of lust. I'm full of a desire uh, for revenge. I mean, that's just a part of who I am, right? When when those bad actions uh, are seen over the surface, that's not because um, it's an anomaly. That's because who I am is, is just kind of leaking out right? I'm not the kind of person who naturally does those things. And that's a big problem. (laughs) And of course, I think that's exactly where Jesus wants us. He presents us with this version of righteousness. He confronts us in it with the reality of ourselves, which is, to go back to last week, we are poor in spirit. We have a poverty of of spirit. We lack the internal resources to be the kinds of people that God is inviting and asking us to be. And so what that does is it throws us into this place of total dependency and surrender to God. A a place where we say, God, man, apart from you, I can't possibly live this life. I mean, apart from your spirit moving in me and transforming me from the inside out, I could never possibly do this. And yet you're calling me 
and inviting me into this. But on my own, I will never pull this off. And that's exactly where Jesus wants us. He wants to bring us back to that first beatitude of poverty of spirit. So practically speaking, I want to turn the corner here. Um, what does this mean? If, if that's the case, if, if Jesus is inviting us to be a different kind of person that we aren't in and of ourselves, then practically speaking, how do we go about pursuing the kind of righteousness that belongs to Jesus' kingdom? I'd like to say two things, and I, just based off of what Jesus actually says here, I think there are two really important things that we need to lean into. Uh, the first is this, man, we just need to constantly be bringing our hearts before the Lord, right? We need to constantly be bringing what's under the surface to the Lord. And, and let's just acknowledge, um, we don't like to do that. We don't like bringing the stuff underneath the surface out before the Lord. That's it's hard. It's painful because it's ugly. Um, and that kind of work uh, is humbling and it's slow work. You know, it's not very efficient work. You, you can't just, you don't always see immediate results from doing that kind of work, but that's what's required. It's what's going on in here that we need to bring before the Lord. We need to allow God's spirit access to what's going on here and allow his spirit to do that, that transforming freeing, changing work in us. I was thinking this week of Psalm 139, where King David, who is a very broken man, acknowledges God's spirit who knows everything about him. And he ends that Psalm by bringing his heart before the Lord in this way. He says, search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's anything offensive in me and lead me in your way everlasting. It is a posture of saying, Lord, here's the lust. Here's the, here's the anger. Here's the lack of faithfulness. Here's the desire for revenge. Lord, I see it and you see it and I need your grace. And beyond your grace, I need your spirit. I need your strength. I need you to, to create in me a new heart, as Psalm 51 says, and to renew a spirit in me so that you begin to change me from the inside out. But it is a regular posture of constantly bringing what's underneath the surface before the Lord. And that's long, hard, but really fruitful work. So that's the first way we pursue this righteousness. And then the final way, the second way, uh, which might feel very different than that, is we also have to do this. We have to step into concrete actions that are in line with God's kingdom. And I think there's a temptation for a lot of people who read this, this section of, of the Sermon on the Mount, just to think that, you know, Jesus, he doesn't really care about behavior. He's all about the heart. That's all always about. But as you read this, you realize, no, Jesus actually really cares about behavior too. He really cares about action as well. I mean, if you look at the first two commands, the ones about murder and adultery, right? He first addresses the heart. He says, hey, murder is about something underneath, which is anger in the heart. But then he calls people to a concrete action. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your guilt, or offer your gift. Right? That's, that's a concrete action step to take, to deal with your anger and deal with other people's anger. Or look at the one on adultery, right? He goes under the surface to the heart posture of adultery, which is, which is lust, but then he and asks us to engage in concrete action. Verse 29, 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown to hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Okay, it's a little bit of hyperbole there, but he's calling us to quick and decisive and sometimes even drastic action to help our hearts line up with the way that God wants us to be. He's saying, put yourself in a place through your action that allows your heart to begin to be the kind of thing that God wants it to be. And anyone who has ever fought sin in their lives, um, anyone who's ever fought addiction in their lives, knows that this dynamic is true. I mean, whether it's sexual addiction, like what Jesus might be talking about, or substance abuse, or, or whatever it might be, we know that there's deep heart issues involved in addiction, right? There's, there's core things that have happened that I need to be healed of um, that, that this behavior is just a symptom of. So the heart is so central. And yet we also know anybody who's serious about actually changing and growing from these things is going to have to take a lot of concrete action steps, right? If it's sexual addiction, you're, you're going to have to have an accountability person in your life. You're going to have to make sure your computer's not in the bedroom. You have to put uh, you know, accountability software on. There, there's all sorts of concrete actions that you need to take. And, you know, a, a person can, can choose to comfort themselves by saying, oh, it's really just a matter of the heart. But anyone, who, again, who's serious about changing knows, no, this requires action and commitment. And Jesus knows this. He knows it's about the heart. And he knows our actions are really important. Or let's just look at these last two. I'll end with these last two. Look at the actions uh, Jesus calls us into, the eye for an eye and the love for your enemies. Um, he's not just calling us to a heart posture with our enemies. Right? And, um, and he's not just calling us to be passive uh, with, with those that, that we have a hard time with. I mean, look at what he says. Verse 39. Don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. If anyone wants to sh- uh, sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Okay, he's not calling us to be passive. He's not just calling us towards a heart posture. He's calling us towards proactive action, right? Turn the other cheek. Say, hey, you want the other two? Turn it. Hey, I'll, I'll go the extra mile with you. Those are very proactive actions that are disarming, that are surprising, that would, that would, a person who's been mean to you wouldn't know what to do with those, but they're very proactive. Love for your enemies. What does he say? Love your enemies, verse 44, and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, these are concrete actions that you can take and should take in order to step into the kind of righteousness that God is inviting you into. All right, so I know I've just skimmed the surface and there's just so much there. But I want to just leave us with this idea that Jesus invites us into this deeper kind of righteousness um, that is holistic, that involves um, laying our hearts before the Lord regularly, laying what's under the surface before the Lord, but it also involves stepping into actions that are in line with his desires. And I leave you with that idea that you know, our, our Lord is so holistic, right? He knows how we're wired. He knows how human beings are, that we are body and soul, that we are heart and mind and body. And he's not just interested in our behavior, and he's not just interested in our heart postures. In the end, he's interested in us, right? I mean, he's interested in us. And so life in his kingdom is going to involve nothing more and nothing less than simply offering our very selves to him. (laughs) Every day, 
as living sacrifices. Lord, here I am. Here's my heart. Here's my behaviors. Here's my attitudes. Here's my actions. It's yours. I want to become the kind of person that by your grace I will one day become. I want to leave you with uh, the great words of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he talks about just this holistic call that Christ makes on our lives. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I love this. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Amen. This is Search Me.
find the restless Search me and find the worries and doubts That bind me Search me and find the weakness Search me and find the fears and broken parts Restore and heal my desperate heart. Well, we hope this time has been an encouragement to you, and we invite you to keep the conversation going by engaging the discussion questions at the end of this video. And let me close our time with this benediction from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.